Welcome to Black Earth Podcast. Black Earth is an interview podcast that's celebrating nature and the inspiring Black women in the environmental movement. In this episode, we meet with Dr. Gladys Kalima Zikuzoka from Uganda. Dr. Gladys is Uganda's first wildlife vet, and for more than 20 years, she has supported local communities in Uganda to live healthily with mountain gorillas and other wildlife. Join us for this incredible conversation as we learn more about Dr. Gladys's work with mountain gorillas and communities and her experiences as an African woman in nature conservation. Thank you so much for inviting me, Marion. I'm Dr. Gladys Kalemazik-Soka, founder and chief executive officer of Conservation Through Public Health, which is a grassroots NGO that promotes biodiversity conservation by enabling people to coexist with gorillas and other wildlife through improving the health of the people and the animals and the livelihoods of the local communities who live around protected areas. I, I'm a wildlife veterinarian by training. Um, as a first veterinarian for the Uganda Wildlife Authority. And later on, because of experiences I had setting up the veterinary department in the Uganda Wildlife Authority, we decided to found conservation through public health when we found that you couldn't keep the animals healthy without attending to the health needs of the people. So it's been a very interesting journey. Um, and I look forward to talking to you about it. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you, Dr. Gladys. Um, so how would you describe your relationship with nature? I would say that my relationship with nature is, I have an intimate relationship with nature. I actually grew up in Kampala, the capital city of Uganda, and I never really got to experience nature until I revived the wildlife club at my high school in Uganda. Uh, Chibuli Secondary School, and I had an opportunity to take the children to the National Park, Queen Elizabeth National Park, that actually at the time had very little wildlife because of poaching during the Civil War um, in the 1970s and a little bit of the 80s, um, when, and through bad governance, that basically a lot of animals had disappeared, had been poached, or they had gone to DRC, neighboring DRC, and so when we got there, we were actually allowed to walk in the Savannah Park because there were no predators. And as much as I enjoyed that whole experience of walking in the park and camping in the bush, I felt sad that there were very few animals. And that made me feel like I wanted to be a vet who works with wildlife. Having grown up with lots of pets at home, I always wanted to be a vet. But when that experience made me want to be a vet who works with wildlife. And then when I finally got a chance to work with chimpanzees in Budongo Forest. That was my very first project with wild animals. I did some research on chimpanzees while I was doing my vet school at the Royal Vet College University of London. And then that was amazing. It was my first time to work with animals in the wild. We got up very early in the morning, um, got getting them when they're getting out of bed, and then collect fecal samples from the ground, you know, when they defecate on the ground. It was really interesting. And I was just looking at the parasites they could be carrying. It was the first parasitology study on the Budongo chimps under Professor Vernon Reynolds, who's a professor at Oxford University, and gave me that opportunity. 
Then two years later, I got to work with the mountain gorillas of Bwindi doing something similar. Um, and that was when tourism had just begun. And so that was really amazing as well. Um, at that time, I looked at parasites and bacteria in gorillas visited by tourists and one group visited by researchers. And I became even closer to nature because they made me stay in a mud hut. I'd never stayed in a mud hut in my life. And alone, I was alone on top of a hill in a mud hut. It was really freaky. I couldn't sleep for the first two days. But after that, I loved it. <laughs> and every day, you know, like I'd go out with the rangers and trackers and the tourists actually um, and collect samples from the different gorilla groups or two gorilla groups and also got to, you know, got to walk. And with Brindy, you have to hike quite a bit to get to the gorillas. Um, but I loved it. And that's kind of when I really fell in love with the place and I felt I wanted to come back. And I did come back and I've never left. <laughs> I was just at Bwindi. I came back on Sunday from Bwindi and visited the gorillas on Saturday. <laughs> wow. I checked on them on Saturday. That is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> that is incredible. And what, what made you fall in love with Bwindi? Because you've been, you know, working there now for like nearly 20 years. Like, what was it about that experience of like being there and being with nature? Um, I've actually been working there for even over 20 years. Like, since all my working career, like 20, it's coming to 26 wow. years now. Um, I think when I was there, I kind of felt that I was really contributing to conservation because we're, first of all, the mountain gorillas are so few in number. At the time, there were only 650, about 650. Now they've almost doubled in size. But I felt that these species are going to become extinct if you don't do something about it. And 650 was the wild population. There were only about 300 at Bwindi. And I just felt we needed to be, I, need, I felt like I wanted to do something to increase the numbers of these gorillas so that they don't go extinct. And I was hired as the first vet for the Wildlife Authority. Uh, essentially, Uganda's first wildlife vet because they hadn't had vets working with wildlife. At that time, everyone felt that wildlife should be left, you know, to natural selection. If an animal falls sick, it's the next meal for the lion. Or if two gorillas fight, it's, it's normal behavior and you're interrupting natural group succession. But because their habitat has been encroached so much by people and people had slowly cut, cut, cut the forest and their forest habitat was shrinking. And at the same time now that they've been habituated for tourism in order to protect the habitat, actually, you know, to provide an economic incentive so that the habitat doesn't have to keep shrinking, then you, we expose them to a new threat, which was disease from closely related people we share over 98% genetic material and can easily make each other sick. And so, although tourism was a great opportunity, it was also a great threat, a great risk to them being able to survive. Um, however, the benefits were greater than the threats. And we find that populations of gorillas where tourism is doing well, in a way you have active tourism, is where the numbers are growing, which is the mountain gorilla subspecies. In Rwanda and Uganda, tourism is thriving and really making a difference, not only to the local communities living next to these protected areas, but it's providing substantial revenue for the wildlife authorities where these animals, you know, that are in charge of managing wildlife. So even providing revenue, not only for gorillas 
and gorilla conservation, but conservation of other species where they don't get enough tourists to cover operational costs. So that part has worked out really well. I founded Conservation Through Public Health um, based on the experiences we had. Um, we basically, one of the very first cases I had to deal with as a first vet for the Wildlife Authority was a fatal skin disease, which is scabies or psychoptic mange, which is in, more in animals is called psychoptic mange, in people it's called scabies, and it was affecting the gorillas. They told me that the gorillas were losing hair and developing white scaly skin, and it turned out that it turned out to be scabies. The baby gorilla unfortunately died. We lost the baby gorilla, and but the others managed to recover when we gave them a treatment of ivermectin. And then a few years later, another gorilla group got scabies. And during this time, we started to realize that it came from people because these particular gorilla groups like to go outside the park to eat people's banana plants because their habitat has been destroyed by people. And then once they got habituated to tourism and they lost their fear of people, they decided to go back to where the groups used to range before people destroyed their habitat. And so they were coming into contact with people going into people's gardens, touching dirty clothing on scarecrows, which is probably infested with mites. Um, they were going where there's rubbish heaps and things like that and picking up diseases. And so we held health education workshops with the local communities. Actually, they asked me to, someone asked me to lead them because I was the only vet in the organization. So they asked me to lead them um, to talk about the risks of disease between people and gorillas. And when we held them with over a thousand people in eight villages, they came up with amazing suggestions or recommendations of how to improve the situation when I told them what the problem was. And a lot of what they suggested is what we used to start the NGOs. Like, these are really great recommendations. They're even better than what I was going to propose for them. You know, but someone told me, Let, let's first hear what they have to say. And actually, they had much better recommendations than I had for them, which was also a great eye-opener to know that communities just need to be facilitated to come out with what they need. You shouldn't impose your ideas on them. And so we used, a lot of that is what we used to start CTPH. It made me realize you can't keep the gorillas healthy without attending, you know, keeping, making sure people are healthy and their well-being is good. Without improving the health and well-being of people, it's very difficult to keep the gorillas healthy. And so that's why we started CTPH. And conservation through public health, I guess at that time, it was something that, you know, I didn't realize that it was one of the first One Health food programs in the world. Um, we just felt it was something that needed to be done. And so this NGO was one that addressed the health needs of the people and the animals together. And yeah, it was quite a challenge fundraising at the beginning because everyone thought I was, we were crazy because normally people only attend to the health needs of people. You know, you have the medical doctors for the people, the vet doctors for the animals, and the conservationists are out there to do education and law enforcement, you know, anti-poaching, uh, or maybe some community development. But addressing all three together seemed to be something that we had to, I to get a lot of, I had to spend a lot of time explaining why we're improving the health of people and wildlife together. <laughs> and do you know why I think now it makes sense mm -hmm. because 
we have examples like conservation through public health. Yes. That it works and it's like the most logical way of addressing it. But do you know why at the beginning it was difficult to kind of get like funding or support for the way you were doing conservation, at conservation through public health? I would say that it was, um, would you call it a disruptive idea? At Conservation Through Public Health, we have three integrated programs. Um, one of them is wildlife health and conservation. It's actually wildlife conservation with a big focus on the health of wildlife, but we've also look at the habitat conservation as well. Um, and we have a gorilla health and community conservation center at Windy Penetrable National Park, where we look at samples from gorillas. We analyze samples from gorillas every month and look to see what they could be carrying and whether they, they could be sharing anything with people or livestock, and we try and prevent that early enough. And then we, we do this by also comparing with people and livestock where the gorillas are ranging. And in the process, we've, we deworm the livestock and the people where necessary or give them the other necessary treatment that they need, working closely with the local health centers and the district veterinary officers who deal with livestock and the wildlife authority so that we're able to make sure the wildlife are attended to in time. And then we have um, and other NGOs who are also focusing on either animal health or human health in the area. And then we also work with um, community health workers and carry out a lot of behavior change communication through them. We basically teach them to do conservation work. And we used to call them community conservation health workers. But when the village health team system reached Windy, we called them village health and conservation teams. And they promote good health and hygiene because when you're healthy and hygienic, you're less likely to have infectious diseases like scabies or tuberculosis, you know, even HIV. When you're healthy and hygienic, it helps to minimize on such diseases. Um, we look out for people who have infectious diseases and make sure that they refer to health centers through these volunteers. They look out for people who are sick in their villages and re refer them to health centers, encourage them to go to health centers. They also promote community-based family planning because we find that if you have too many children, people are having as many as 10 per woman, not even per family, and they couldn't give them proper health care. They couldn't even break the poverty. They couldn't take them to school because they would say half are for chasing wildlife from the garden, half are for going to school. And then when it gets to that stage, it's very hard for those children to ever have a future, those, especially those who don't go to school, because they'll never get a job. They'll just be peasants digging in the garden, early teenage pregnancies, and fully depending on the forest to survive. And so we saw family planning came in later because we saw it as a way to break the poverty cycle. And when you have children who you can manage and provide proper health care for, then even the level of zoonotic disease decreases and the level of dependence on the habitat, the wildlife habitat, decreases because they can get proper jobs. And then the family is lifted out of poverty. And then you have, you know, there's less threats to the gorillas and other wildlife. So then we also promote nutrition, um, sustainable agriculture, because it's an area which is very steep and communities have to, you know, do proper terracing and everything to prevent soil erosion and plant 
crops on a small plot so that they're able to eat, to able to have food to eat, um, which is which is great because once they have food to eat, then they're less likely to enter the forest to poach. Um, we also promote. We we talk a lot about the volunteers talk a lot about the threats of zoonotic disease, both from eating bush meat, but also zoonotic disease that they can spread to the gorillas. And they all understand it a lot because the gorillas are lifting them out of poverty. So they don't want to make them sick. And we talk about how we can reduce that. They also, we also started talking to them about how they can access tourism revenue sharing because some money from every permit is given to the local community um, and from, a pack, from the pack entry fee. So essentially about 18 to $20, $20 from every tourist who comes goes to the local community. And it's in a big fund, and that money is used for community development projects or even community health projects or whatever they feel is their priority. So we talk to them about how they can access this money. And so it's been, and because each of them is in charge of about 30 homes, they're able to really follow them and change their behavior. So it's a whole behavior change communication method, which we feel is really has really worked because... People have really changed. Over time, we've seen great impact. And then the third program is Alternative Livelihoods, where it was we brought it on later because we found out that many people are unhealthy because they're poor and we needed to improve their livelihoods as well. Although other NGOs were focusing on livelihood and community development, there are some areas that they were not focusing on, and those are the areas that we are mainly looking at. We're developing a global coffee brand to save gorillas through coffee and... We work with coffee farmers around the park and give them good price for good coffee and a donation from every bag so it goes to support community health, gorilla health and conservation education in the same area. And this enables farmers to, you know, be able to send their children to school and not poach because then if they want to eat meat, they can sell their coffee and get meat. They can send their children to school. They don't have to enter the forest to poach and collect firewood just to survive. So we provide them access to reliable markets and a good price for the coffee. So that's also been a very exciting journey, setting up the social enterprise, because it's actually a for-profit social enterprise. It's not a non-profit. And can you tell us more about the impact of your work? What are some of the changes that have uh, that you've been part of enabling uh, at conservation through public health, which you're really proud of um, and kind of show why your approach to conservation is, uh, yeah, makes a difference. Yeah, um, we've been really proud. Actually, conservation through public health will be 20 years this year. We've got to 20 years this year, so we're very, very excited. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. We're still, we're still around, we're still existing, and now we're growing as well, so we're very happy about that. Um, some of the changes we've seen, um, we found that as people are getting healthier, gorillas are picking up less diseases from people. We haven't had more scabies outbreaks since we started the NGO. Um, people are having less, gorillas are not picking up jardia and other diseases from people, they're picking up much less of that because... People are now having toilets, and when gorillas go to someone's garden, they don't find open defecation in areas where they're ranging because we really focus on those areas. In fact, we also work, we do a lot of training of rangers 
to monitor the health of the gorillas as they collect the samples, but also the gorilla guardians who had gorillas back when they come out, the human gorilla conflict resolution team, to make sure that wherever gorillas are ranging next to people, you know, the, peop the people are healthy and the gorillas are moved away from people as soon as possible. So we're happy that as community health is improving, the health status of gorillas is improving. Gorilla health is improving. So we're very excited about that. We're also finding that people's attitudes to conservation are improving because we're addressing healthcare, which is a basic human right. People are happy like that we're not only concerned about the wild animals and the forests and the trees, we're also concerned about them. And when you show them that you care about them, then they're more likely to support conservation. We're seeing more, we're seeing more tolerance to gorillas if they, one such particular gorilla decided he wanted to spend his last days in community land. He was an old musei, <laughs> silverback, um, called Ruhendeza. And he was actually, his group was the first to be habituated for tourism. So when they called me and said, can you, maybe we should translocate Ruhendeza back into the forest. When we checked him out, we saw that he was so comfortable in community land. And even if we translocated him back a few days later, he'd come back out again because he felt safe with people. He trusted them. Um, so I, we educated the communities through our village health and conservation teams to tolerate him, taking occasional banana plant or coffee berry and, you know, just tolerate Ruhendeza um, because he's helped to lift them out of poverty. And they did. They said even when our elders get old, we look after them. So when, when Ruhendeza finally died, um, they all came to pay their last respects to him. And they just thought that it was so nice to see that people are really... They see the gorillas as their future and they're very willing to coexist with them. So we're seeing improved attitudes to conservation, um, which means the gorillas will have a more secure future. But one thing I'm really excited about is that the mountain gorilla numbers have almost doubled. And I'm glad have, that we have contributed to that, along with other NGOs, the government, you know, the private sector who bring tourists. It's been a concerted effort and we're so glad to have been a part of that. Your, your work with conservation through public health, uh, the, the, one of the core and, as you mentioned, disruptive idea about conservation through public health is the idea of One Health. Yes. Um, and I think now more than ever, that idea is so central to the way we think about everything, um, especially after COVID-19. Um, so could you tell us more, like, what is One Health? Um, could you explain to us what that is? One Health is addressing the health of people, animals, and the environment together. And we started conservation through public health as an, a One Health organization from the very beginning. Um, and we're so glad that many people now understand what it's about. The pandemic had a lot to do with that. Our One Health approach at CTPH, you know, if you only improve the health of the animals or you only improve the health of the people, you'll find that they're going to continue to make each other sick. And um, so zoonotic disease, prevention of zoonotic disease is something that really shows why One Health is important. With the COVID pandemic, we're not really sure where the COVID came from, although it's, a lot of it is pointing towards, you know, wild animals, um, probably from the wet market, although it's not yet been proven. But definitely, even if we're not sure how COVID got into people, 
we're very sure it spread amongst people very quickly, but we've seen cases of COVID jumping from people to animals, including gorillas in zoos. And they got sick and a silverback gorilla almost died if he hadn't got monoclonal antibodies in the zoo setting. And we've also seen COVID jump from animals back to people, like in mink, farmed mink in, uh, in the Netherlands and Denmark. So, so we know that COVID you know, can jump back and forth like other coronaviruses between people and animals. And one, uh, one health approach that addresses this, looks at the health of the people and the animals, the environment together, is, can help to reduce diseases spilling over between people and animals, jumping back and forth. So that's why one area where one health is very important. And we found that alternative livelihoods is also part of one health because healthcare is just another dimension of poverty. And if people are unhealthy then, or they're poor, then they're less likely to cope. And so there's a lot in there as well. Um, and it's been a journey discovering what One Health is. Um, one thing that we're doing right now is also re promoting responsible tourism to great apes so that when people visit them, they have to wear a mask. This is something that started during the COVID pandemic in Uganda and Rwanda. We advocated to the government that everyone should wear masks. Um, and now all the countries where great apes are found, we've developed a policy brief so that all of them adopt it. You have to wear masks when you're within 10 meters of gorillas or chimpanzees when visiting them as a tourist or a researcher. You know, try and maintain the distance, make sure you're not sick because we can easily make them sick. And it's not only COVID, other common flu viruses. In fact, it was found that during the pandemic, chimps and gorillas were falling sick less often because people are wearing masks anyway to prevent COVID. And so trying to educate tourists that to be a responsible tourist is not only about seeing the animals, but also supporting the communities who are sharing their fragile habitats with the, these endangered species. And all of that is One Health. <laughs> oh, wow. That's incredible. And how can our listeners, like what can they do to support like a greater uptake of One Health approach uh, in their cities, in their communities, in their countries, because it is, it is a big concept that has many different ways to engage with it. You know, there's, it's not like one key solution. So what can an everyday person do that can really help to support and promote this idea of One Health as, um, as an effective solution to, you know, uh, promoting conservation of nature, promoting human well-being. And, you know, I would even argue addressing some of the impacts of climate change that we're seeing in the world right now. Yes, definitely. It's a very good way of, you know, mitigating the impact of climate change or helping people to adapt to climate change. I would say, you know, spreading awareness about these approaches. Um, we regularly put out posts on social media on One Health issues. Um, they could follow us on social media. And actually when they follow us, they'll also start to follow other organizations who are promoting One Health. Um, they could uh, visit us, volunteer with us, read up about it, um, continue supporting communities. You know, when they visit, they should also visit the communities, give a donation. All of these ways are ways of promoting One Health. I've just written a book, which is going to come out next month in America and in April in the UK. 
Amazing. And it's actually a conservation journey, a conservation and leadership journey shaped by One Health. So there's so many things there about how we've discovered the importance of One Health and how we can continue to build up upon it. Even th- simple things like you know recycling, reducing rubbish everywhere, you know, all of that really helps because it's so easy for animals, to, you know, to get plastic bags, for people to get sick just by that. There's so many interventions. Using clean energy cookstoves is another One Health intervention because it helps to reduce acute respiratory distress syndrome, but also helps to, you know, potentially reduce cutting down of trees because the firewood you use in one day, you can use in one week. So there's just so many different ways that people can promote One Health, support it. When you visit, be ready to wear a mask. Understand that it's not all these images of, I want to get as close as possible to the animals and I don't want to be seen having a photo with a mask. It's not cool anymore. It's not cool because you don't want to make an animal, a whole species go extinct because you're just thinking of, you know, this gratification that I've got close to a great ape because they're so accommodating like the gorillas. Um, So it's, it's a whole lot of it. And making sure that the people, everyone is part of it, you know, not only the people who live next to the wildlife, but the people who visit the wildlife. They're all part of the solution. And they can all be responsible and make sure that the wildlife is there forever and they can benefit from it forever. What are some of the the kind of personal challenges you faced as someone who is a leader and you're you're constantly innovating, you know, and how do you how do you resource yourself personally to be able to continue to do this work? Um some of the personal challenges are basically being a woman in conservation <laughs> because women are not supposed to be out there, you know working with dangerous animals, living in remote conditions, camping in the bush. We're not supposed to be doing that. We're supposed to be in offices or having predictable jobs. Um, and so that has been changing people's mindset that, yeah, women, are, it's okay for women to do this. And when I started out, there were no female rangers, for example, but now 20% of them are, are rangers. In the 20% of we, the ranger force is, is women. Um, so that has been something. And the veterinary in Uganda, there were hardly any women vets. I'm glad that there are more and more women vets. And being the first wildlife vet in Uganda was, I guess, changed people's minds because I brought a unique skill set to the table, which was needed in conservation, anything to do with animal welfare in conservation. And so that helped people to respect me and accept me quickly because I was hoping to address a need that a gap that needed to be addressed. Um, So it's been a real journey, but we're finding that there are very few women leaders in conservation, very, very few. And so that's why I became one of the founder members of Women for Environment Leadership Council that was initiated by Dr. Leila Haza, who founded Lion Guardians. And she got some of us to be part of that leadership council where we're mentoring women to achieve their leadership potential within the environment space. But then another challenge I faced is also being a black person in conservation, you know, because 
conservation has always been led led by, you know, the of the whole concept of conservation, you know, like the whole has was introduced to Africa. You know, people came and said, you have to protect your wildlife. You have very important wildlife, and actually, our forefathers had their own way of carrying out conservation. Like for example, in my culture. You don't eat an animal of your clan. Some people of the elephant clan, they won't eat the elephant. I'm from the lion clan. I'm not allowed to kill a lion. <laughs> if I do, I'll be in big problems. So many bad things will happen. You know, like it's, you're, taught, you're brought up knowing that you shouldn't eat your clan or destroy your clan. And there's always a group of people protecting that particular species, whether it's an animal or a plant. So, but it was very good when people, people, we try and also look at combining the local beliefs, traditional beliefs about conservation with the, the modern beliefs about conservation. When you combine them together, you find that you can really go very far in conservation. And so in a way, like when you say that you're a black person promoting conservation, you know, you're, you thought, well, there's very few of you doing that. Um, what's your motivation? Why do you want to do it? But then you find that actually our forefathers were doing it before. We just need to dig a bit further and we'll find that we were, you know, we, we Africans have always been conservationists. It's just the circumstances that changed everything. And so trying to tap into that traditional knowledge is very, very important. But we find that if you don't have Africans leading conservation efforts, they're also not likely to be sustainable, just like with communities at the community level. And so I became a founder member of the African Primate Society, where we are promoting African leadership in conservation. Um, basically, we're trying to promote primate research and conservation, promoting African leadership in primate research and primate conservation. We often went to conferences and found that were very few of us who were talking about the primates in our countries. And there's a very, and yet the primates that people are talking about were mainly in Africa or Southeast Asia, but there are very few Africans and Southeast Asians at these conferences. So we decided to set up the African Primate Society with colleagues from West Africa, South Africa, Central Africa, and East Africa. And basically the president is from West Africa, from Ivory Coast, Dr. Inza Kone. I'm the vice president from, U from Uganda. And... It's been great. When we had a conference in Uganda, for example, on Ivory Coast, 80, over 80% 80 of people were from Africa, and they were the ones giving the presentations, which is fantastic. The Uganda conference had over 300 people, which is amazing. And people are so excited. And some people, let's say, from Nigeria came, and they were like, you know, we need to make sure we don't eat the wildlife in our country because Uganda's benefiting from the wildlife. Let's go back and protect the wildlife. A professor came, went on radio and talked about it. So we need to have that homegrown movement of African conservationists if the wildlife is going to survive in the future. Because these are the people who are going to end up becoming members of parliament and make decisions whether they should cut down trees to plant sugarcane. Um, so because the people within these countries are the ones who are going to become the leaders or have leadership positions within their countries, it's so important. It helps a lot if they're conservationists. You know, I'm really, I'm very inspired by, you know, what you're saying about the need to build a homegrown conservation movement because yes. um, there's a tendency for people to think that conservation is something that 
historically or even now is like came from the West and it's all about keeping people and nature separate from each other. But I feel that through your work and the, the way that you approach conservation, which is about rebalancing people's relationship with nature in a way that nature can thrive and people can thrive is really important. And also reminding people that all around the world, people do practice conservation. Mm -hmm. People have their own uh, wisdom, knowledge, you know, ways of conserving and restoring nature that is indigenous to their own, you know, cultures and their own ways of being. And it isn't this like separate idea that's just come from somewhere else. And I think it's such an important part of of us communicating what conservation is going forward. Yes. It's not about telling people that this is like this idea that came from somewhere else, actually reminding people that if you look at, you know, the way you you harvest your food or the, the type of food you eat or the the types of beliefs in your culture about nature, the stories and the the folklore that you tell about nature, you'll see that there's like wisdom in like how to take care of nature, you know? And um, it's something that I'm very passionate about because it's I think it's an important part of um, trying to kind of break the barriers around conservation and who can be in conservation and who, who um, has the ability to, you know, take part in conservation. Yes. Um, so thank you for the work that you're doing, basically. <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> And I know we could have we could have had a whole conversation around conservation and how it needs to change, but I feel that it's more important to talk about the change that you're actually making uh, rather than you know the the different ways conservation needs to change going forward. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. And if if you know, I know that there are people. Uh, especially, you know, young black women who are listening into to our conversation now and might be curious to explore the kind of work that you do further, you know, what advice would you give them um, in terms of their journey ahead and how to, yeah, how to, to go forward in, in this work? I would say that um, if they, they should be deterred, they should be focused and don't worry about what other people think about them. Um, and be willing to break barriers, um, societal barriers and cultural norms in order to do what they want to do. Um, they, shouldn't, they should be, you know, look around for more role models of people who have managed to do it and get inspired to do it. Um, I, somebody who's been a role model for so many women has been a Dr. Jane Goodall who went out and studied wild chimpanzees at the age of 26. I'm really glad that she's written the foreword for my book, actually. Um, and she, I used to see her and think, okay, I've always wanted to work with wildlife, but seeing role models like that made me even more determined to go ahead and do what I really wanted to do. Um, there's a certain, another trimate, like Dr. Jane Guro called Dr. Brita Gaudikas, who studied orangutans. They're all, they're called trimates because Professor Louis Leakey got them plus late Dr. Dan Fossey to study mountain gorillas around the same time. And Dr. Brita Gaudikas wrote in a book that I bought when I went to, to one of her talks in London, you know, follow your dreams and the rest will follow. And that's the advice I'd give to African women, <laughs> young African women. 
and men. <laughs> yes, yes, to everyone, to everyone. Yes. Follow your dreams and your dreams will follow. <laughs> um, so finally, tell us about your book. Tell us about your book and how we can, yeah, how we can buy it. Tell us about your book. Um, yeah, my book, I'm very excited that it's finally out because I've been trying to write it for years, you know. <laughs> and so the book ends up being divided into four parts because the first part is my early years and how I set up the wildlife club and I got engaged in conservation. And then the next part of the book is about setting up the veterinary unit, becoming Uganda's first wildlife vet. And then how that led me then to set up conservation through public health, which is the third part of the book, um, setting up an NGO, which in itself is quite exciting and frustrating. But, <laughs> but all that we've been able to accomplish and the journey that we've had setting up conservation through public health. And then the fourth part of the book is talking about how to sustain conservation you know, through tourism, through social enterprises like Gorilla Conservation Coffee, through One Health Approaches. And I also have a chapter on women and conservation, which was one of the hardest chapters for me to write because I had to allow myself to be very vulnerable. Um, but it's, it's really exciting. And I'm very happy to share all that I have in the book. It's, it's a memoir, but it's also, I'm also advocating for various things, that way that I think things should be done. And the book can be available. It's available in the US from March, mid-March, March 14th, UK from 27th of April, Uganda shortly after, and possibly Kenya, South Africa, and other countries. We'd love it to be available also in Nigeria and you know many countries in Africa and in Europe um, as well, and possibly in other languages as well. This is us being very ambitious here, but... <laughs> <laughs> South Africa is another place where we, no, it's needed. We really feel that the people enjoy reading the book because South Africans love wildlife, and we get so many, and they love gorillas as well. So, <laughs> and they're very concerned That's about incredible. sustainable development. So, anyone who's interested in, you know, wildlife, poverty alleviation, women empowerment, sustainable development, public health, one health. And traveling, you know, believe that a lot of travelers will enjoy the book. I'm sure they'll enjoy the book. And people want to be inspired, different ways of doing things. And I also encourage, hopefully, other people will be able to write their books, having read my book. <laughs> the books they've always wanted to write. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you for joining us on today's episode. We'd love to hear your thoughts and you can connect with us on Instagram, LinkedIn and TikTok at Black Earth Podcast. Make sure you're subscribed to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. See you in the next episode.